Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Episode 120 of Outlander Cast is brought to you by Minute with Mary. It's a minute with me, guys. MinuteWithMary.com is a great place to discover new makeup and skincare. But if you search the hashtag MinuteWithMary on Facebook, you're going to uncover all of my different tips and tricks and videos. And listen, for those of you who are listening right now who are thinking, oh, man, it's almost fall. That means it's almost the holidays. I got to buy some gifts. Where's this money going to come from? Think about joining my team. Just search the hashtag MinuteWithMary online. See what I do. Maybe you want to do it too. Shoot me a message. That's Minute with Mary. All the way from Cranston, Rhode Island, welcome to Outlander Cast. It's a podcast dedicated to the show Outlander on Stars. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back. My name is Mary Larson. My name is Blake, and I think that there is absolutely nothing more fulfilling in life than geeking out over history I totally for, about, disagree. for about an hour. I totally disagree. How can you disagree with that? I think s'mores are more filling. <laughs> no, no, not filling, fulfilling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your brain at today? Oh, I just started to eat healthy, guys. It's day two. <laughs> it's day two. For any of you who ever tried to like eat healthy, does anyone else out there just think about food Feel in those first burn. couple of days? <laughs> All I want we is start s'mores. dreaming about food too. I haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> but I am thinking about s'mores right now. All right. But yes, geeking out over history is quite fulfilling. For for me it is at least. And I don't think there's anything better. Except s'mores. Which is exactly <laughs> which is exactly which is exactly what we did uh, with this episode. We, you know, we've been famous for doing the history podcasts. The you know the famous. Jacob, yeah, famous. It's, yeah. Uh, they're world famous, as a matter of hey. fact. That's how we got our Marconi. But come on now, um, it, we we are. You know, we've done the Jacobite history podcast. We did the history of France podcast, and we thought, you know what, let's do the you know the history of North Carolina okay. for this one. Yeah, like, we you know, did. Hey, you know, it, we're, we're in a new spot. Let's just do it. You know, fortunately, though, for all you listeners out there, and, and for Mary's sake, they didn't have to listen. You don't have to listen to me blabber on. Rather, I was hungry for about you know for about you know forty five minutes or or an hour or so. We actually brought in an expert to talk about colonial North America and what it was like in North Carolina. And I am so super excited because the conversation was freaking awesome. We, you know, we actually talked much longer than what we actually have recorded here for you guys. But you know, the amazing amounts of nerd outs, it you know, it almost rivals the nerd out that I have with that I had with director of photography Steve McNutt. But just in his, in terms of history, you know, it it was oh my god, I was I'm so proud of this conversation. 
So, my love, are you ready to you ready to get into the to the nerd out session? You bet, man. All right, let's do it. Joining us today is Ed Ayers. He's one of the podcast hosts from Backstory. It's a show all about American history. You guys will definitely want to check it out after you listen to this episode. Ed also happens to be the winner of the 2012 National Humanities Medal from President Barack Obama. Ed is also the President Emeritus of the University of Richmond, a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Oh, and he's also written 10 books, one of which was nominated for a little-known award called the Pulitzer Prize. You may have heard of it. Well, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on OutlanderCast today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So one of the things that we like to do here, obviously, is is talk about the history of Outlander and what that all means when it comes to the book and also, most importantly, for our purposes here, the show. And as all of the listeners know, or most of them know by now at least, it's taking place in North Carolina in the late 1760s-ish. So what I want to know from you first is, specifically about North Carolina, when was it settled and, and, and you know, what, what kind of people were going there during that time? Well, I, I'm a native North Carolinian, so I can say this. It was a real backwater you had to try really hard to get to North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, uh, later the saying went that North Carolina was the valley of humility between two mountains of conceit of uh, <laughs> Virginia and South Carolina. And that's because it was. Uh, there's no good ocean access to North Carolina except down at the very bottom near South Carolina, Wilmington. The rest of it is the reason it's popular today. People love to go to the Outer Banks and so forth, those barrier islands, but they're called barrier islands for a good reason. <laughs> they are uh, making impossible for big ships to get there. So the short answer to your question is that not many people from Europe went there for quite a long time. Uh, even as Virginia was filling up, uh, some of them spilled over into North Carolina, but you did not really want to go to North Carolina <laughs> if you were coming from the British Isles. Uh, there really wasn't much there for you. It's kind of like Rhode Island, you know, like they, they were all like <laughs> the people who said Rhode Island, Rhode Island were all the losers from like Massachusetts and Connecticut. You all, know? The, all us riffraff. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm disavowing any anti-Rhode Island slurs here. Let's just let listeners know. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the land like if people did find their way to North Carolina? Tell us more about that. Well, if you're in eastern North Carolina, it's a big, sandy area with lots of pine trees. Uh, and those pine trees end up becoming very important. We'll talk a little bit later about that. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Piedmont where there are rivers and you know, that's where, you know, Greensboro is today, Charlotte, you know, the place that ended up being sort of the center of North Carolina. And then the part that I'm from, Appalachian, North Carolina, way up in the mountains, the highest mountains east of the Mississippi River. So there's basically three states of North Carolina, uh, east, middle, and west. Um, the story of the 18th century is going to be primarily in the, uh, the east, the coastal area, mm -hmm. and some of the Piedmont. So the uh, people talk, you may have heard the North Carolina nickname of Tar Heels. 
Um, and you'll be shocked to know that people disagree about exactly what that means. But there's no doubt that it comes from the fact that all these pine trees were really good for the naval stores of just the kind of creaking wooden ships that Outlander transports its people on when they're not <laughs> transported through time. Um, and uh, those ships basically depended on all the tar and pitch from those trees to not sink into the Atlantic Ocean. So the main thing that North Carolina had was trees, uh, but they were very valuable. And if you'd walk through that part of the woods, uh, chances are you get tar on your feet, including tar on your heels. Wow. And so, so it's kind of like redneck tar heel would suggest, first of all, you, you were barefoot. <laughs> the other thing <laughs> that you were walking among the, all these uh, trees with all the sap and pine tit and pitch. Now, did you say that you live in the more mountainous area of the state? That's where my family uh, okay. somehow settled in the most uh, infertile and but beautiful areas. Really, we, we grew up, my, my family's from 1830s, the base of Mount Mitchell, which is the tallest mountain uh, east of the Mississippi. Um, and it's remarkably, looks a lot like Highland, Scotland as it turns out. And a lot of the Highland Scots went there. Mm -hmm. But yes, that's where my family's from. I, I moved a whole hour away to grow up in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I'm native born North Carolinian, many generations. So Ed, tell us a little bit about what the area of Grandfather Mountain is like, because that kind of area is important in, uh, in the series. Well, it's remarkably beautiful, and as the name suggests, it's remarkably mountainous. It's really one of the highest areas that um, you would find in, in North America. Um, and Grandfather Mountain is, um, has become a tourist attraction uh, because they put a road in, but that whole area would have been really rough and hard to have established a farm in in the 18th century. Wow. And what's, like, what's just the weather like there? You know, What are the seasons like? Just thinking about... You know, the settlers of that time. Well, it would have been a lot warmer than Scotland. <laughs> and so, but it, it looks like Highland Scotland. I mean, it's, you know, when I visited Scotland, uh, and I said, okay, I've been here before. It, it's what it looks like. But um, it became a big resort area, and it still is because it's 10 or 15 degrees cooler uh, than the flatlands. And so people would establish resorts there. Um, and really pretty tony place in the 19th century uh, because it's a lot cooler because of the elevation. So our characters in Outlander go from Georgia to, to North Carolina. They make their way up there eventually. Is that that kind of hard traveling for, for settlers like that? Yeah, you wouldn't have much stuff. The, uh, what you would have would be, if you were lucky, uh, some kind of wagon with an ox pulling it. Uh, maybe you'd have a cow uh, for... Uh, for milk and maybe a hog or two. The best, best thing you, would, you could have would be hogs that you would let sort of run free around the farm. Uh, Axe, uh, <laughs> that's pretty much it. You know, uh, especially in the 18th century, there you couldn't carry it, and it's going to be really hard. There are basically no roads. So if you're trying to find an inhospitable place, maybe a safe place, uh, Highland, North Carolina would be a good place to go. Mm -hmm. So now, of course, you know, it's it's not highly settled, but a lot of the people who would have been settling that area would have been Native Americans at that time. Can you tell us a little bit about what those original settlers, who was actually there before the Scots came over? Well, in the Highlands, it would have been the Cherokee. 
um, who are Iroquoian speaking people, um, and they would have been there uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, we have just a beautiful traveler's account just a little bit below this in South Carolina. He talks about beautiful fields that they've established uh, down by the, the rivers. Uh, it would have been you know, pretty close to paradise, really, if you think about how hard people work to have a home in the mountains now. Uh, the hunting would have been remarkable, uh, the, the, the number of deer around and so forth. So uh, from the Cherokee's point of view, uh, these uh, people from the British Isles showing up would have been um, a real intrusion upon the landscape. But at first, they could have been a novelty. And if they brought things to trade, they would have been welcomed. As, until their numbers became overwhelming and until they started taking away land, um, the Indians of North Carolina got along pretty well with the settlers, uh, actually until they became settlers. <laughs> as long as they were traders and so forth, uh, that was pretty welcome. So unlike uh, other parts of North America where the indigenous people really fought back against the settlers, North Carolina with the Tuscarora um, in the east and the Cherokee in the west were actually pretty hospitable most of the time. So our characters, uh, they've actually run into a bunch of different tribes, at least within the book, and they live in the eastern part of, of uh, South Carolina, or sorry, North Carolina. So, but they actually run into the Mohawk tribe in this, in this book. Uh, is that something that would have happened in like real life, or is it just the Tuscarora and the, and the Cherokee? Well, the, the Mohawk were part of the Iroquoian League, uh, and I think contrary to the way a lot of people imagine, uh, these people were very mobile. Uh, they were traveling and trading across vast areas. So the Mohawk would not have been settled in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. they, North Carolina would not have been their home, but they might have come there to, uh, to trade uh, with the uh, British, uh, and also they might have come there to have traded with the Cherokee or Tuscarora. So I would not be offended if the Mohawk show up in Outlander, but those are not the first indigenous people that you would expect to run into in North Carolina. They're basically based in uh, the Northeast, um, and uh, they would have been strong in uh, New York State and even Canada. You actually mentioned uh, a key word there, the, the Iroquoian League, and I, and I just wanted to go over that real quick for a bunch of people who don't know what the heck that is. Like myself. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, hey, you know, me, me, me too. Why not? Can you explain that just a little bit further? And are there a bunch of different tribes that make up the Iroquoian League? As the name suggests, uh, it was not an athletic conference, but it, what it was was people tied together by a shared language group. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of People don't understand there have been hundreds of different languages spoken among the native peoples of North America. Uh, and a lot of them, the, the languages were as different as Chinese to French. Mm. So it's not like they're kind of alike, you know, if you just made the right signals, you could understand each other. And so not surprisingly, uh, as with the, the French or Spanish or English, um, people who shared a common language uh, often shared a common uh, tradition. So the Iroquoian League would have been a way to have been stronger in the face of whatever threats were posed, either by other native peoples or by uh, the Europeans who were showing up. So let's let's dive down deep a little bit further. The Tuscarora, could you could you talk about that uh, about that about that tribe a little bit and what they what our characters would be running into if they met them? 
Yeah, so the Tuscarora, uh, like most of the native peoples, when they first met some of the British, they were happy to trade with them, uh, especially for guns, uh, which were really helpful in hunting. Uh, and then in a kind of escalating uh, practice that we see throughout North America, more guns leads to more hunting, which leads to fewer animals, which leads to farther hunting, which leads to conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are producing the highly fashionable uh, deer skins, which you would have seen on the streets of London. Uh, you would have seen the white tails uh, on people's hats and things like that. Uh, and they were, and partly because they're at this same time a, a cattle uh, infestation in Britain, and so that they needed the leather of the deer as well. But the as the British start expanding more and more into Tuscarora territory, uh, they fall into conflict, and the British actually capture some of the Tuscarora and sell them into slavery in Charlestown, which we know is Charleston, South Carolina, which would have been to the south. And they this came to a head in the Tuscarora Indian War, 1711-1714, which the British won. Uh, then they signed a treaty, and the Tuscarora were uh, forced to two reservations in North Carolina. So 40 years before uh, this part of Outlander, uh, the Tuscarora had already been removed to reservations, which we tend to think of as a 19th or 20th century thing, but in fact was an 18th century phenomenon as well. Wow, that is phenomenal. Well, it's also the case, and, and to lend more credibility to the Mohawk thing, uh, some Tuscarora fled north to join the five nations. Okay. And so that you could have imagined that. So if we want to imagine the scene, let's imagine Tuscarora who've been decimated by the British settlers uh, who go to north to find um, uh, allies among the Mohawk. So that's a plausible, uh, if difficult, <laughs> scenario. <laughs> and how did the Tuscarora do with illnesses that might have been brought over by these new settlers? I mean, just one of our main characters uh, is very good with with healing. So <laughs> I'm wondering how, um, if you know of anything that happened to the Tuscarora with like their health, with any outbreaks. We do know that over 90% of the indigenous people who were here before European contact died by the 18th century, wow. often from diseases they never actually saw who brought them. You know, somebody would come in and trade uh, at an outpost and then unknown to others, you know, take measles or smallpox or something back, which did not exist before the, the uh, European arrival. And so you would have seen massive death and destruction uh, even before the English showed up. So that's one reason the English are kind of underestimate the native peoples when they're when they're arriving a lot of these uh, groups have been really broken by these unexplained illnesses that have killed so many of them um and so you're seeing a lot of uh, the native peoples forming new alliances and moving uh, so uh you know i think we have the idea of that the indigenous people have been where they are in the group they are you know for time immemorial but by the time the british the, actually show up. There have been all kinds of changes. The Catawba Indians in um, central North Carolina had undergone the same thing as well. So you'd have found, anytime you'd found Indian people, they had suffered enormously from uh, European-born illnesses. Uh, And so the healers would have been the most valuable people you could have. If you could find somebody who could stop this ravaging of these completely mysterious illnesses, they would have been highly esteemed. I want to move into that vein a, a little bit here. You talked about the Iroquoian League, and you also talked about all the different tribes moving in and out of different places. What 
how, how did the arrival, rather, of the settlers impact those that kind of inner politics uh, of those established tribes of the league? How, how did that affect everybody there? Well, you know what you find is that the people who the British settlers can either be your friends or your enemies, right? Uh, and that's one of the things that puzzles the the British so much is that they find the Indians unpredictable because they will shift loyalties uh, because when they and it could be something as small as a farm, you know, lets his hogs or cattle run through the fields of local Indian peoples, right, and just devastates their food supply, and the Indian people, you know, shoot the cow or the pigs. You'd be surprised the number of you know, battles that grow out of things like that. So it's a constantly and highly volatile uh, environment. Um, and what you would have found, too, is that Indian peoples are looking to think, well, do we want to ally with these people? Do we want to join with others against these arrivals? Um, and so in the same way that the, British, the English, the Irish, and the Scots didn't get along, you'd find the same way that the American Indian people were not like, hey, we're all Indians, we've got to stick together. They, they wouldn't have seen it that way. They're, they care about themselves, their people, and what's advantageous for them. Well, I got to tell you, you gave me the perfect segue into in, in my next question, which I is, live for perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did North Carolina become the area that the, the Scots congregated? Like that was the place, apparently, as opposed to other colonies. What what about North Carolina made that so special? Well, because they actually had uh, a, a, a Scotsman in charge, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, they at first, not many Scots came to North America for a long time. Um, in the 17th century, when there were a lot of other people coming from the British Islands, the Scots were not that likely. But by the 18th century, the 1770s, there may have been 10,000 a year who were coming. And probably by 1785, there's probably 150,000 Scots in North America. And a lot of them uh, came to North Carolina. Uh, about a thousand men, women, and children were banished from Scotland and forced to become indentured servants after the Jacobite Rebellion failed in 1746. Uh, and then uh, the Scottish uh, immigration had begun in the Lowlands, but in the 1730s, the Highland Scots began immigrating as well. And from about 1740 to the 19th century, Scot uh, North Carolina was the favorite place for Scots to come partly because they had helped settle North Carolina from its outset. The first proprietary governor of Albemarle, as it was called, William Drummond, was Scottish, and Scottish elites would use their connections uh, in Scotland to encourage, and sometimes they would finance Scottish settlement in the colony. So uh, it was a kind of chain migration that you hear about today, right? Uh, it was intentional. And if you're getting ready to sail across the ocean to this completely bizarre and unsettled place, having one of your countrymen there f help fund you and meet you when you got there would have been an enormous advantage. So once this stream began, it was kind of like siphoning. Uh, it, it kept bringing the Highland Scots, especially to North Carolina, even though North Carolina was not a particularly prosperous place. Mm -hmm. So, and I should say too that one of the reasons that they were that was popular is because they were Presbyterian, um, and so people other other Presbyterians would welcome other Presbyterians. Uh, it sounds very innocuous today, you know, <laughs> the Presbyterians wouldn't want to get them sideways with those Methodists or whatever, but it was a big deal. 
um, to have a, a place where your church would be respected uh, from the moment you set foot. So what was like like for those indentured servants that were coming on over from Scotland? <laughs> you don't want to be an indentured servant. It was terrible. <laughs> you know, basically you belong to somebody for seven years and you have to do whatever they tell you to do. Um, and it all depends. It's a lot like novels. Uh, you might land with somebody good that you'd fall in love with and end up being married to them. Or you might land up with somebody who was, you know, sadistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and you would need to remember a lot of these indentured servants would have been quite young. They would have been teenagers, basically. So what that means is if you uh, are bringing them over, we can imagine what it would be like to be betting on what some teenagers are going to be like, especially teenager boys, if I may say so. Uh, famous for running away, famous for getting indentured girls pregnant, uh, famous for maybe even consorting with Indians uh, or with uh, African slaves. And so it would have been a very rough and tumble existence. Your goal was to survive, and then you would be given 50 acres, and then you would be able to bring over some other servant and torture them. So it's a great system. <laughs> oh, man. So those who weren't indentured servants, um, what, what did they do to make a living? Well, there's only really one thing to do, which is be a farmer. Um, and that what you would do, you'd be as close to the river as you can, um, because that's the only form of transportation. Um, even five miles, if you can imagine, you know, dragging pine trees five miles through pine forests gives you some idea of what it'd be like. So uh, they would uh, basically grow crops and raise horses and cattle and hogs that they would then sell to the planters of South Carolina and maybe of the Caribbean. Something else we need to remember is that this is basically a part of the greater British Caribbean. And so it's not very romantic, I'm afraid. Um, you know, we don't really have movies about hog droves, but th- that would have been what the people ate more than anything else. And somebody's got to raise them. <laughs> so we talked a lot about um, the Scots coming over and they're coming over in droves. You, you said even as much as 150,000 at this point in time all throughout, throughout the colonies. But, you know, specifically, what kind of influence did the Scots have on their on the culture in the Carolinas? And is, is it something that's still felt to even this day? Yeah, this is a really controversial topic. Uh, people have built entire careers arguing that um, we're basically and I'm, I'm really probably Scots Irish myself. And we were in uh, Europe touring around showing the kids civilization, we, all these museums. They were trying to figure out. So, so Dad, who are we? I said, well, we're the Scots-Irish. We came and took Scotland away from the Irish. Then we came and took America away from the American Indians. Then we helped enslave people from Africa. And then we went to war against the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so th- that's kind of the, the story that a lot of people tell about the Scots-Irish. Uh, also with other nonsense like uh, people in the mountains, uh, like my grandparents, speak purely Elizabethan English because apparently we'd never – talked to anybody else and didn't get out much. So, I, you know, in all honesty, I'm not much a big believer that it made that much of a difference. It's kind of funny. Today, you go to Grandfather Mountain um, and you can see the Highland Games uh, in which men with, in kilts and heavily muscled uh, 
doing things like throwing giant poles and things like this, I can pretty much guarantee you that the only time that you would see anything like that in Scottish culture is when in North Carolina mountains is when it's staged for tourists. So that's my truculent answer. I would say if I were looking for uh, a, a more encouraging response, I'd say that Presbyterianism has been really important in North Carolina all along, uh, heavily evangelical state. Um, and, you know, places like Davidson College and you know, Presbyterian. I'd also say that America's really great, unique contra- cultural contributions to the world and country and jazz and blues music, uh, a lot of it would have its origins in Scots and, and other English Isles music. Um, you know, we th- what we think of as uh, old time music or, or bluegrass, whatever, uh, has its origins in that as well. So I think that. You know, many people would think that the mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee are the places where this culture that came over the 18th century has been, as they say, preserved. Um, I think it's probably where it's interacted with everything uh, from African-Americans to YouTube today. uh, And it's never really stopped interacting. So I think it's it's real. Uh, You did have a really concentration of uh, Scott's culture in Highland, North Carolina. Uh, we just don't want to freeze anybody. In the same way, we don't want to make the American Indians sound like they were just sitting there waiting for the English to show up. Uh, we don't want to make it sound like the people who settled into the hollers of North Carolina were then just sitting there waiting for somebody to come write down their folk songs. Mm-hmm. They're living their lives too. Given the Jacobite Rebellion, so what was the Scottish people's relationship with the British and also the colonists who were already well-established in that area? What was that dynamic like? They didn't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the Scots and the English uh, had been, you know, uh, had fought wars over who's in charge of them. Ironically, they probably would have been more friendly to each other by the late 18th century than before because of the French and Indian War uh, in which uh, settlers of English and Scottish and Irish background would have joined together to have fought against uh, the French and the Indians, as the war (laughs) name suggests. (laughs) And uh, after that, it seemed like, okay, well, maybe you're not so bad after all. Um, so in many ways, it wasn't until then, in the middle 18th century, that you would have found people talking of Britain of being a unified place that has both the Scots and the English as a, as a single people. Mm-hmm. So that include the Irish, <laughs> but it's, it's got the, the Scots and the English would have gotten along better by then. Well, but there's still a lot of just, you know, the same way that Northerners and Southerners today in the United States mutually trivialize each other, you know, and make fun of each other the way they talk. Uh, I'm glad that neither Blake nor I have an accent. So <laughs> you can imagine how that's the case. But uh, that, that's what it would have been, that really centuries of conflict. But the new world kind of brought them together in a new way. And I knew you and I, we had a connection. I, I appreciate you. I just want to let you know. <laughs> Obviously, everybody else got an, ac- an accent, not us. I, I, I feel and, you on that one. I feel sorry for them, don't you? <laughs> and I will say that you are also, again, the king of segways, because I have to ask you, I want to jump forward a little bit, and can you give us a brief summary of the French and Indian War? I mean, really, I, and this is a big question, and I understand that. Yeah. I appreciate it. But, you know, how did it begin, and what was its impact, either socially, politically, or 
even economically on the colonies overall. <laughs> so quickly, okay. So let's pull the camera way back uh, because that's the best way to understand this. Sure. It's not really the French and Indian War. It's really the Seven Years' War between uh, the great European powers. Uh, kind of like World War One and World War Two would later, it echoes and reverberates around the world in lots of different places. Uh, its reverberation in North America is what we call the, the, the French and Indian War uh, in the 1750s. Uh, and the idea was that uh, just the way we, Americans call the, the War of Mexico, the Mexican War, mm-hmm. uh, people called it by the name of their enemies. So it's the French. It's not the French and Indian are Indians are at war with each other, mm-hmm. but rather it's the French and Indians at war with the British power and the British colonists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was really who's going to control North America. Um, and, you know, the French have been coming down through Canada and the Mississippi River and, you know, the uh, uh, converting people to Catholicism, uh, competing for the uh, trade with furs and so forth. Um, but it's also in the world system who is going to control this vast new empire. And so um, the people who are living here are going, okay, now I see that the French and the English are fighting against each other. As a native person, here's my chance to side with people, maybe just stop these damn British from from spreading. Mm-hmm. So the British win. I don't want to ruin the story. If it, Spo- <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, and what they do is they, in order to stop further conflict, um, the British say, hey, all you American settlers, like the folks from Outlander, uh, you may not cross over the Appalachian Mountains to what comes on the other side. So for a while, you would have found uh, Western North Carolina, East Tennessee being the boundary of settlement. It would have been as close to the middle of nowhere as you possibly could have gotten. But, uh, but no sooner does that happen, uh, that's in the 1760s, then the Americans start checking against that. And that's one of the reasons they go to war uh, against the English for their independence. Mm-hmm. How dare you stop us from spreading uh, over these mountains? We're ready to go. And... Uh, so, so it, ironically, in a short period, it goes from being a time when the British make North America safe for British settlers to really annoying the heck out of British settlers mm-hmm. and helping them feed into the American Revolution. So given what we can at least call a complicated, if not contentious or convoluted relationship Look at between, all your alliteration. I know, like, it's, it's, you can call it all those things. It's because I'm... Because I'm, it's I, Carolina. It's because I'm awesome. <laughs> That's why. Um, given all those... Given that complication, complicated relationship Can you between, give like a non-C word? Look at you, go. Between the British <laughs> and, and the, well, and the, the, the colonists. colonists. Ooh, there and you go. <laughs> more C words for you. Uh, the colonists and the, and the Scottish and the French and that whole... Really, it's complicated Facebook relationship. Were you were we finding the the Scottish settlers or uh, or even the the, the 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 Jacobites siding with the British or were they siding with the the French and the Indians? Or were they minding their own business? Were they like get out of my face? I want nothing to do with this. How how did that all go down? The answer is yes. <laughs> they did those things, but generally they would they sided with the English uh, because why would they? Uh, they are settling farms. And they want to be free to and to have those farms, and also who they're going to trade with. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole idea is that you need to be able to trade with the home country. So uh, they would have been 
that's one of the things that would have cemented the relationships and actually created bonds uh, of British North America instead of just English North America, mm-hmm. that the, the Scots, Lowland and Highland uh, would have been uh, eager participants uh, in that war. And then again, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of the story. I don't <laughs> want to ruin the story too. Another war follows that one. So I don't know if Outlander season four gets there or not. So I don't want to tell you about well, it. I think, I think we're going to get there. And I actually have one other question for you. All right. In, in this area, I know up in, in New York and in, in, in Massachusetts and in, in Canada, Maine, that whole area, the French and Indian war is, is, is a big deal. But more specifically, what did anything happen in particular in North Carolina during that war? Were there any major battles? How how did that all go down at at, at that time in that place? It's not an accident that it's a big deal in the north. You know, sure. it's at Ticonderoga and all that sort of stuff. Yep. You know, people really in the south have never really heard of it. Don't know what it means. It's just not a big deal here. Um, so, but what it, it's it's backwash would have affected North Carolina as being a place where. Uh, the frontier would have been dangerous. But North Carolina had its own problems. North Carolina was kind of torn up from inside. It didn't really require outside stimulation to to be in conflict. And I can tell you about that if you want me to. I would absolutely love it. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> so the North Carolinians were known from the very beginning uh, as a, a mutinous people. Uh, they really didn't like anybody telling them what to do. Nice. <laughs> and they didn't like the British Crown's authority. They didn't like the local... Uh, embodiment of the crown's authority. Uh, they thought that they kept rebelling against anybody who tried to tax them or or recruit them for war or put them into place. And so, matter of fact, uh, North Carolina would have been sort of on the cutting edge of the revolution. A lot of people who just said, you know, we don't need these stinking English. Let's just go ahead and 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 fight. So even though people from Massachusetts think that it began there, they could not be more wrong. Uh, oh. Yeah, I know. You guys have, <laughs> have, you know, sort of commercialized that, the Patriots and all that. But the <laughs> fact is that the North Carolinians also, if you can imagine this, fought for their freedom from the English. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, it, but basically because they were fighting against everybody else. So the, the revolution does begin uh, in the, the wars in the North, but then it moves to the South. Uh, and there, uh, North Carolina... Uh, they, a bunch of people show up at Governor Josiah Martin's home uh, in New Bern, North Carolina. And basically, I've seen the trailer for Outlander. That It couldn't look like that. People showing up with torches and throwing rocks through windows and all that. I don't know if that's who that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that scene would have been what would have happened because the, the North Carolina settlers really resented the British power uh, and its local representatives. So I, I just want to say there's one thing in, up in Massachusetts that we have a saying. It's they hate us because they ain't us. Okay, that's that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it sounds like you're saying something. No, I'm not, not anus. I'm saying I'm ain't us. I'm like, I, 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 was yeah. I know. I know. It's so sweet is sweet tea. And here I am being like, Blake, you need to pronunciate. Ain't. Oh, you ain't know. Whatever. Us. What, 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 what. Oh my goodness! <laughs> That's absolutely staying in the episode. By the way, I'm just I'm just saying that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We're not going there. Yeah. <laughs> um, the whole Revolutionary War time frame in my mind is very exciting, but also mushy. It's it's all mushy for me, and I just am trying to figure out. What do you mean mushy? I don't know. Listen, I'm well, a Rhode I mean, Islander. It's, it's shapeless. Yeah, it is. It, it's so distended in space and time 
that it's really hard. It's not you. It's we, the history itself that's like that. And it doesn't sure. help that I grew up in Rhode Island and we were the last ones to join the colony. So we just kind of like didn't do much. So when I grew <laughs> up and, and you learn about Rhode Island history... It's not too much, whereas all these other states have kind of important things going on, and ours was just the rejects. <laughs> no, uh, you were the center of the slave trade. That was great. Really? That's why it's oh, called yeah. Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Oh, well, yeah. That would yeah, Rhode sense. Island, they were, their big industry was running the slave trade. Bring it back to North Carolina. You know, there is a famous movie that takes place in between the Revolution and the French and Indian War, and that is in, in North Carolina, and it's called... The Patriot, and it stars Mel Gibson, and a lot of people absolutely love that movie. I consider myself somewhat of a fan of that film just because of Jason Isaacs. Uh, I think he's great. I just think Mel Gibson likes to fight the British. I think so, too. So you are in that area, and you are this is you know expertise in this area. Tell me about The Patriot. Did you love it? Did you hate it? And why? I'm sorry. I hate it about <laughs> as much as I hate any movie. I'm sorry to say. Because at the end... It is completely fraudulent. Mel Gibson standing there with an enslaved man and saying, now we have freed America. (laughs) What have they freed it to do? They have freed it to become the largest and most powerful slave empire in the modern world. Mm -hmm. If the United States had not come into existence in the revolution, slavery would have had a different path. You know, the English started ending slavery in the 1830s. Uh, You may have heard that the United States did not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's some cool – and they did not lock people inside a church and set it on fire and stuff like that, you know. So I think that it is fraudulent at its core uh, because it denies what was lost in the revolution, which was a chance at the end of slavery – for generations for African-Americans. And, you know, you don't, every movie doesn't have to be like medicine you take that makes you feel bad about yourself, but to invert it at the end so that it's a celebration of the very thing that we should bemoan, uh, just, it just drives me crazy. So that, that, that's why, but that, it's interesting. We don't, we, we don't have arguments about the Revolutionary War movies the way we do about Civil War movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's partly because we don't really have a clear enough vision about uh, the Revolutionary War to have stereotypes about it, except, you know, the British and Redcoats, and they were bad, and they marched in stupid lines while we shot it from behind trees. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what we got, right? Uh, but The Patriot, I think, I, and it's, it's like so many movies about the past, there's no reason to do that. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a powerful story to think about the British and the the power of the empire and people fighting back against it. You know, that's a I I can imagine a series set in outer space that would work really well like that. Right. (laughs) But to feel like like so many movies about the United States have to end with some kind of uplifting ending. And in this case, one that's diametrically opposed to the truth, uh, I think is just it's just way too bad. I'm confident that Outlander season four is not going to do anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> hey, that, out, that outer space story is basically Battlestar Galactica. There so, you, you know, there you go. It, it well, comes full circle. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Star Wars too. That would make Empire sense. Empire Fights Back would be a, a good name for a part of that, maybe. <laughs> the Death Star and all that, right? But it's interesting how we uh, can be the Empire sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, especially for slavery to be involved, and also we're American Indians. So I think that uh, I see why people like the Patriot, and 
Mel Gibson does look great in that hair. But <laughs> the fact is, is that it's just not just wrong, but in the teeth of truth. Uh, and so I not endorse that movie as a way to understand the American past. <laughs> what kind of role did North Carolina play in the early onset of the Revolutionary War? Like, I know we talked about perhaps, you know, being really pissed off at the British. What's the rebel situation it, like? Is, is this is this stuff that our characters would have been running into where we would be like, okay, this is, yeah, this is this is what's going to happen, and, and it's because of this. So, so let me kind of give you a scene and the timing where we're kind of joking about, but this is 1775, mm -hmm. okay, that this is happening. And many people would recognize that 1776 is the beginning of the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. But in 75, you have hundreds of patriot militia uh, attacked and burned a British fort near the mouth of Cape Fear River, which is um, the major port from North Carolina, where the governor had taken refuge and established a temporary seat. Of government, and he would have loved to negotiate some kind of settlement with these folks, but uh, they launched a preemptive strike against him. And so that what you see is that really North Carolina is very early on in establishing its violent rejection of the British. So it's not famous like Concord and Lexington, uh, but it was an indication that North Carolinians were sort of motivated by the same kind of anger as their compatriots to the north. Mm -hmm. Are, are we finding that the the Scots are joining the the, the colonists uh, now, as now that they're living there, they're they're fighting against the British, or are they sit in the war out? Yeah, what we need to remember is that uh, a lot of Americans would have said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to wait and see what happens." Mm -hmm. The the rule of thumb that historians use now is probably a third were against the revolution, were loyalists, a third were on the fence and a third were patriots. Mm -hmm. So we certainly know that North Carolina had patriots, uh, otherwise known as the people who won, <laughs> right? So they get to be called patriots. Otherwise, they're the, they're the rebels and, and the traitors. <laughs> traitors, right. Um, and uh, so, but North Carolina was deeply divided between, there's a movement called the regulators who tried to bring some order to North Carolina society. Uh, and so you would have found it being deeply divided. The Scots, I do think, uh, ended up supporting the revolution. Um, and they were not, um, you know, royalist or anything. They were ready to, uh, to fight with uh, their fellow, by this point, Americans. So you think about it, if they're coming in the 1740s and 50s and 60s, some of them had been there 20 years by this point, And they identified as Americans as well as Scots. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking just so much war and people just not getting along. Is there anything in the books about the Scots getting together for a little annual gatherings and just having some merriment? Being happy. You know? Yeah. Drinking some beers. <laughs> How about whiskey? <laughs> Eating the haggis. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there was a very strong identity among the Scots, especially of the Highlands. Um, they would have been living in places populated by people much like themselves from the same counties back in, in Scotland, certainly the same religion. They would have come together every week uh, to the Presbyterian Church to have gotten together. Uh, so, yeah, you would have found a lot of, uh, of uh, commingling. You, uh, you had dancing and music. If those are in the show, I would support those as historically accurate. Uh, but yeah, they would have been a strong sense of identity. And that's one of the great virtues of coming to North Carolina, that you can come here and have fresh land, but be among people who are already like you.
Makes me want to go to North Carolina. I what know. am I doing here? <laughs> it is beautiful. Well, so. Ed, I, I, I will say that I, I demand that you watch the show, <laughs> and I demand that you come back on, and I demand that you you go over the historical accuracy with Ooh, us. Ooh, wow. For That's a big demand for a busy man. Four. I know, I know. Well, hey, we, we, we got things it, we got to take care of. Well, I do. You know, the show is interesting. I would say this, that... The less I know about something, the more I enjoy it. So I love, you know, The Crown, uh, and especially shows about Henry VIII and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they can tell me anything, and I believe it. Same. You don't really want to show me a movie about the Civil War, though. It's just like you don't want to be in the room with me. I'm sort of climbing the walls. They would never say that. <laughs> never do that. So you know, asking me to uh, to watch Outlander season four and enter into its spirit. I will be happy to do that. All right. uh, I don't want people to think that all historians do is whine about things that are wrong. Instead, <laughs> what we love is that people are imagining uh, this lost time and place. Mm-hmm. And I think Outlander – and what's TV good for? TV is great at the way things looked, mm-hmm. even though I have a sneaking suspicion that people were not nearly as attractive <laughs> in the 18th century as they are – in Outlander, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> if we actually saw what it looked like and smelled like and felt like, we wouldn't really want to watch it. But the point being, I think that's great that people are interested in this and, and using it to get outside of our own times, which is as confining as our own uh, people who don't travel. So I will watch it, but I'm not going to come back on as a scold and whiner, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can come back on and we can just celebrate the fact that you watched it and that may hopefully you enjoyed it. What do you think about that? That sounds great. It's a good deal. Excellent. Good to know. Well, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and give us and our listeners a little inside peek into what North Carolina and kind of that climate, both physically and socially, was like for our characters at that time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I look forward to tuning in. Ed Ayers, everyone. Thank you, Ed, again, for for joining us. And and I got to tell you, sometimes... Well, most of the time, and trust me, I know this. You know, history professors can get <laughs> so humble. Well, it's true. I, history professors can be a little stuffy, and they okay. can be like full of themselves. And I got to tell you, Ed was there. He was he was ready to have a good time. We were laughing, we were joking, and uh, you know, we made some some you know, hey, some racy jokes. It happens, but he he was all he was all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the racy joke part, but you, you understand what I'm getting at. Uh, kind of. Yeah, I got you. I got you, boo. But so, I, I, I thought it was fantastic that we got a chance to learn all about North Carolina. Carolina. A lot of the things, honest to God, I mean, I know we've joked a lot here, but a lot of things I did not know, it, specifically like pine trees. Like who knew that that was one of the major things that they were did or or hog farming, right? Or better yet, how about the fact that Rhode Island was the hub of the slave trade for the United States? Never. I live here and I didn't even know that. Yeah, we don't really talk about that that much. No, we try not to. Well, you know, it was a great episode. And I'm going to tell you guys, this sets the scene perfectly because season four is a coming for us. Can you feel the electricity? Can you feel it? This is actually the first initial episode for us for season four. I know. This, we, this keep it, the... we keep them in the little folders in our Google Drive. And this <laughs> is the official first one for season four. Let's get a little hallelujah. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Wait, no. Bam! Just like that.
There you go. So excited. So guys, a couple of things. We are going to be heading to the New York Comic Con that first weekend of October. We're going to be having a meetup there. We don't really know too much about the time, the place. We basically don't know anything yet, except that we're going to be there. And we're going to be at the Outlander stuff, and we're going to want to see you. So make sure you're a member of the Outlander cast clan gathering and keep your eyes peeled for that to-be-announced time place of the clan meetup in New York. All right, Mavin, are you ready to close out this Wolfson History Prize award-winning show? You betcha. Not, not even a chuckle. Not, not, not. No reaction whatsoever. No. It's my favorite joke of the whole show. Sorry. Unbelievable. Okay, let's close it out. There we go. Finally. take the time to thank those of you who are patrons of Outlander Cast. You know, without you, this show would not be possible. We would not be able to pay the babysitter that we're doing right now so we can be podcasting. We wouldn't be able to host the website fees. We wouldn't be able to do any of the things we do without you. So thank you for taking the time and the money. Remember, you can join for as little as $2 a month to support us here at Outlander Cast. So we wanted to give a huge shout out to some of our most generous supporters. We have Jen Sherman, a new a new patron. Thank you Jen, Peg Cumby, uh, Ann Gavin, Bobby Franchella. We've got Liz, Meredith, Tina, Carolyn, Sharon, Tracy, Lisa, Sue, Keelan, Dana. We've got Celine, who joined just recently. Thanks, Celine. Mary, Michelle, Jennifer, Heather, Maryland, and guys, so much more. But those, of course, are some people that I want to give some super duper shout outs to. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our heart. Really means a lot. And you know who else gets a big shout out? is those of you who get to leave us a nice written review in iTunes. This helps people learn about Outlander Cast, people who don't even know we exist yet. So this week, we want to thank Time for Fun. This person said, love, love, love listening to this podcast, and I get a special kick hearing the Boston accents come through. Yeah, Great quality. W- wicked good guy. Wicked good. The wicked, wicked good accents. The lobster's wicked good. <laughs> Gonna get in my car. Boston drive cream down, pie. Drive down to the bar, down to the packy. You have it. <laughs> Great quality and content. Oops. Uh, <laughs> time for fun so she listens at work all day. Makes the time go by much faster. Thank you, Time for Fun, for writing that review. And any guys, mean ones lately? I love reading the mean ones, too. The mean ones are great. No, we don't want any mean ones. No, Nothing, but I'm saying, I no. Like, you know. The answer's no. No, no mean ones lately. Okay, cool. Thank you for not leaving any mean ones. The mean ones make me cry. My goodness gracious. Well, thank you guys so much. Remember, another fun way you can share this podcast is by taking a screenshot. You're listening on your phone right now, right? So screenshot it and share this in your Instagram stories or your Facebook stories. It's just another way for people to find out about the podcast. All we can do is just give you the best quality content that you deserve. And if you liked this particular episode, please let us know. We will actually do some more and explore more facets of either colonial history. Maybe you want to learn about the Revolutionary War because I got a feeling it's coming up. Maybe not this season, but maybe in future seasons. We are happy to do so. And if you don't want to like, if you don't want to listen to me ramble on about it, let me know if you like this interview style. I like this interview style. I certainly enjoyed it. I had fun. <laughs> I had I had a lot of fun, but I think uh, I think that's all for now, my that's darling. That's all she wrote. Oh wait, don't what? we want people to vote? 
for no, podcast awards? Nope. We already were nominated for podcast awards. Oh. It's now up to our content, industry leaders, and uh, the podcast award winners themselves. All of those all of those things are already counted. Oh, wow. They are ready to go. Although there are some podcast award voters that, that you guys that, that nominated us. Yeah. If you checked the box to be like, oh, yeah, hey, I'll, I'll vote you know, for the, the nominations. Thanks, you guys. will be randomly selected potentially to, to to vote again for us. So if that happens, please let us know. That'd be great. I'd love Thanks, to know guys. that. So thank you very much. Yes. All right. So I think that's all she wrote. For now, I'm Mary. My name is Blake. And you've been listening to Outlander Cast. <laughs>